The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 6. And this evening in our study of the doctrine of the church, uh, I want to discuss the first of the ordinances, which is baptism. Uh, I wish that we had a few more members of the church here and some others here tonight for the sermon. I preached a sermon similar to this. It's been a long time, but been ten years, about 10 years ago. And after I preached the sermon, there were, and this wasn't long after I became the pastor, that there were members of the church that said, well, I need to get baptized because my baptism isn't right. So I I hope that we would have some more people. We might have had some more that said, well, we need to get this thing straightened out. But I want to talk to you about this subject tonight. And I explained last week that ordinarily we would discuss baptism first before we talk about the Lord's Supper. And that's because baptism is prerequisite to the Lord's Supper and also to church membership. But I had to get a little bit out of order because last week was our regular observance of the Lord's Supper, and so I wanted to take the opportunity at that time to speak on that particular subject then. But baptism is the first one that we should talk about. I don't think we did any harm to the cause because I I think that I explained that we do believe, as Scripture says, that only those that are baptized and members of the church can take the communion. But I'd like to call your attention this evening to the sixth chapter of Romans in which Paul, in one place here, uh, gives us a great deal of information regarding the scriptural purpose, the method, the subjects of baptism. And let me say that before I read this, that I do believe that the scripture in Romans 6 is talking about water baptism. Now, there are many who think that spirit baptism is in view in this chapter, uh, but I believe that Spirit baptism is only found in the New Testament in relation to the day of Pentecost, uh, when the Holy Spirit initially came upon the church. So I think that water baptism is in view in this particular passage, and you'll note this, that in other passages of Scripture where baptism is mentioned, we should always consider it to be water baptism unless the particular context of that Scripture tells us that it's talking about something else. But here I think it's very clear to us that Water baptism is in view, and what it explains to us is the symbolism of what Christ did for us on Calvary. Now, if you look at Romans 6, verse number 1, the Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, my purpose this evening is to give you the Baptist view of the doctrine of baptism, 
And, of course, we believe that is one and the same with the Bible view. Uh, We don't have any agenda in our church to build some kind of a denominational opinion. But we look at this as what the Scripture has to say about it. We want the biblical teaching on it. And so that's not an opinion. Infallible Word of God is the absolute truth. And this is the way that we want to look at it this evening. So what does the Bible teach about baptism? Well, I want to take a moment to read from our church statement of faith, and this gives us a synopsis of the doctrine of baptism. Uh, In our statement, it says, We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer under the authority of a New Testament Baptist church into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life, that it is prerequisite to the privileges of a church relation and to the Lord's Supper. And I'll stop there and you can just look at the rest of what that statement says. Now, this particular statement defines four particular areas concerning the doctrine of baptism. Now, first... This shows us, and the Bible teaches, that baptism requires a scriptural subject. Now, the first phrase of the statement reads, We believe Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer. Now, that statement qualifies who can be considered as a candidate for baptism, that the person to be baptized must be a believer. And if I were to describe the the bloodiest battleground of the Christian faith, it would have to be that opening statement. And I don't mean bloody in a figurative sense. I mean this literally, that there are more Baptist people that have lost their lives over this statement and the defense of this doctrine than all the other things that we believe down through the course of history. And when we get to church history, we'll take a look at this a little bit more, and we'll see that there was terrible persecution uh, of our Baptist forefathers because of the issue of the baptism of believers. And that had huge implications on the ability of those people to survive when our forefathers were branded as heretics by Roman Catholics and by Protestant churches alike. Now, you sitting here tonight, you may think that's very strange that you would have to fight over the issue of whether believers are supposed to be baptized or only believers. But that, in fact, is the case, that there's much of Christianity that baptizes people who are not believers. But believer's baptism, credo-baptism, means that we cannot accept baptism as a means of salvation, that baptism is not a sacrament, which means that we don't believe that in baptism in any way conveys grace upon the person that's being baptized. Now, that particular error is known as the error of baptismal regeneration, or that people can be born again by submitting to the rite of baptism. And that was one of the earliest departures from the gospel of grace. And it wasn't long before the experience of baptism replaced the symbolism of baptism and then became salvation itself. And so baptism became, and what churches were teaching, that baptism became the real thing rather than the picture of what actually takes place when a person trusts Christ. And when a person is baptized, he feels joy. I mean, there is a lot of emotion, there's a lot of joy, there's a good feeling that goes along with baptism. And when the emotion takes over the meaning of the event, that's when you begin to have a problem. 
And that's what happened with the case of baptismal regeneration, that when baptism switched from believers to unbelievers, and that was proposed as the means of salvation, then baptism becomes invalid. That's not a proper baptism. It's not a Christian baptism, and so that has to be rejected. And that's what got so many of our Baptist forefathers in trouble. They wouldn't accept the baptism of unregenerate persons, Uh, They wouldn't accept baptism from Roman Catholic churches, from Protestant churches. And so what Baptist people would do is they would re-baptize, or as we would say, they would correctly baptize a person that came to them from another faith and had trusted Christ. So we won't accept the baptisms that come from Roman Catholics nor Protestant churches. Now, most of the latter, that of Protestant churches, are rejected because those baptisms are performed on infants, and infants are not capable of believing. So they're not real subjects for baptism. So we look at the New Testament, and we find that in all instances where there is baptism, it's of people who have already made a conscious decision of faith in Christ. Now, since that is true, then we know that this is also true, that saving faith is a prerequisite for baptism. And examples of that are so numerous in Scripture that we're not able to go through them all. I mean, it'd be much easier for us to say, just find an example where that's not true, where there was anybody that was baptized without faith, and you're not going to be able to find one. But we do have some classic examples. I mean, those that we can bring out that show us very, very clearly that the Bible does teach that before a person can be baptized, there has to be this conscious decision of faith. Now, let me give you just a couple of them. The first one, I think, is the clearest of all in the New Testament. So take your Bible, if you will, and you'll turn to Acts chapter 8. And this is where we have the uh, example of the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, you know the story, how that Philip the evangelist had been whisked away in a miraculous manner down to uh, uh, near to Gaza. And there on the road to Gaza, he met a, a man who was in a chariot. And that man was reading from Scripture in Isaiah chapter 53. And so Philip went up into the chariot and began to speak to him. And we look in verse number 35 of Acts 8. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same Scripture, that is Isaiah 53, and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now in verse number 37, in response to the eunuch's question, What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip replied, If thou believest... With all thine heart, thou mayest. Now, there isn't any question there that Philip demanded a response of saving faith. And the eunuch was allowed to be baptized if he believed in his heart what Isaiah 53 had to say about Jesus Christ. Now, another example we have is in Acts chapter 10. And this is where Peter preached to Cornelius. You're just a couple of chapters from there, so you might want to look at this. Acts chapter 10 and verse number 43, Peter is preaching to Cornelius, and he said to him, give all the prophets witness that through his name, 
Whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So these are people that had believed. If you want to look a little bit over into the 11th chapter, you find in the 17th verse of the 11th chapter that they had believed and they received the Holy Spirit. And so thus they were qualified to be baptized. Now no one receives the Holy Spirit unless they're saved. When we talk about believers, who are we speaking of? Well, we're talking about people that have had a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. So it takes the Holy Spirit to show us that we need Jesus Christ, he's the one that brings the confession to us. And so when that's happened, when the Holy Spirit is there, that means that the person has actually believed. Now, you'll go to many other scriptures, and you can never find an example where faith is absent before baptism. And neither will you find any scripture where there is a baptism performed, and then there is a subsequent declaration of faith for salvation. Now, secondly... The symbolism of baptism demands faith. Now, in our text of Romans 6, baptism is shown to be a a representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, as you know, when we're baptized, we don't literally die on the cross. We're not literally put into a tomb. We don't literally arise from the grave. Those are all pictures, and those pictures have to be believed before you can do what the picture symbolizes. You have to believe what that picture symbolizes. So the person that's baptized does believe that really death, uh, Christ did die for our sins, that really Christ did go into the tomb, and he actually did arise from the grave. That is the faith that is demanded in baptism. Now, the symbolism also says that we've died to our old way of sins. We've risen to walk in a new life in Christ. So verse number 6 of our text says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Well, there isn't anyone that experiences death to sin and has new life in Christ without first believing in Christ as Savior. So you can't picture something that's happened to you if it hasn't actually happened to you. When Jesus spoke of salvation and eternal life in Mark 16, 16, He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The symbolism of baptism demands faith. And only those that believe can be baptized, and those that do not believe, the word of God says that they're damned. And so Jesus' statement disqualifies unbelievers from baptism. Now we put all that together, and that tells us, Uh, The scriptures infer to us that, thirdly, infants are disqualified. Now, never never mind that you could never uh, 
find even one instance of an infant in the New Testament that was baptized, they're disqualified because of Jesus' statement about faith and baptism. And yet, this is one of the most hotly debated points between Baptists and and other groups. If faith is required and the symbolism demands faith, that tells us that infants cannot be baptized. But when you get the purpose confused and you're trying, as Roman Catholicism does, when you're trying to save people with a sacrament, uh, if, if you're trying to get them to heaven by their baptism, then it stands to reason that the earlier that you can baptize them, the better off that you'll be. And so they started to baptize babies because that's the shortest route to heaven. Get them started early, baptize them, give them that saving grace of regeneration and baptism. And then the Protestants, they also switched the purpose of baptism and they made it a seal of the new covenant of faith that we have in Christ. They said that baptism replaces the circumcision, which is the seal of the Old Testament, the seal of the Old Covenant, and that the believers, or the babies of believers, rather, uh, should be baptized because of the covenant that God has made with their believing parents. But we don't find any of that in the Scriptures. The only ones that we find in Scriptures that are baptized are believers. Now, secondly, baptism requires a scriptural mode. Now, the first phrase of the statement of faith says... We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer. Now, that tells us that proper baptism is by immersion. Now, we read in Acts chapter 8 about Philip and the eunuch. There, you remember, it said they both went down into the water. In Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, this is what we read of that account. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water which means that he was in the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. In the Gospel of John, it says that John was baptizing near Enon because there was much water there. Now, you don't need much water if you're going to sprinkle someone. And uh, I've never seen anybody crawl into a cup to be baptized. That, That hasn't happened, so... You can't do it because you need much water. You know, one of the interesting places that we visited when we were in Israel was a place that's called Yardinet. Uh, this is located on the Jordan River uh, near to where the, the river flows out of the Sea of Galilee. And there are thousands of people that go there uh, just to get the experience of being baptized in the Jordan River. I mean, the water is deep there, there's plenty of water, and so they do a lot of baptisms, probably maybe thousands of baptisms. I have a picture of that for you, uh, one of the pictures that we took there. Now, I, I don't think that there is any special significance in being baptized in the Jordan, but people go there and they do it for the emotional aspect of it. And really, as I mentioned a moment ago, that's one of the things that got people in trouble over baptism to begin with, was the emotional aspect of it. And then it's also wrong for someone who has been baptized and been baptized properly. It would be wrong to go there to get a second baptism just for the experience of it. I mean, I I had a friend of mine that did that a few years ago, and he came back talking about what a great experience it was to be baptized in the Jordan River. Well, when we were there, um, our uh, tour guide uh, was a, a good Bible teacher, and he didn't encourage anybody, thank the Lord for this, he didn't encourage anybody in our group to, to go and get baptized in the Jordan River, even though you could have done that if you wanted to. 
I wish that he was as good on the Lord's Supper as he was on baptism, but he, he told me he just never said anything about that, and so there was nobody in our group that wanted the experience of being baptized in the Jordan River. But there's an interesting thing about this place that I never saw anybody standing on the bank of the river and somebody squirting them with a water hose. All of them went down into the water. They were completely immersed in that water. Now, why do you suppose that with so many Christians in the world that believe that baptism can be done by sprinkling, that you have this place on the Jordan River where people go to be immersed? Why do they do that? Well, they do it because they recognize that that's the way that it was done in the New Testament. All baptisms were by immersion. Now, Luther and Calvin, Protestants who both believed in infant baptism, agreed with this, that immersion was the original form of baptism. I mean, there's really not much argument about that because that's what the word means. The Greek word means uh, uh, to be immersed in the water. And so for 250 years after Christ, all baptisms were by immersion. And even up until the 17th century, still immersion was the most common method of being baptized. And even babies uh, were, that were being baptized were, were baptized by immersion. But the mode was changed. Along the way, the mode got changed for convenience. Uh, they baptized, were able to baptize people by sprinkling, people that were sick and couldn't get to the water, that were unable uh, to do that. And so the, the convenience of it just won out. And people began to say, well, the mode is not really important. We don't have to do it the way they did it in the New Testament. Now, another thing that's interesting about it is that in the King James Version, the translators uh, took a transliterated form of the Greek word uh, rather than directly translating it as immersion. Now, if they had translated it instead of transliterating it, then the Ethiopian eunuch said, what doth hinder me from being immersed? That's actually what he did say. What doth hinder me from being immersed? And then the scriptures would say in the commission, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And if it had been translated that way, it would have cleared up a lot of confusion. But in defense of the King James translators, there's nothing at all wrong with transliterating the word because they didn't invent the word. The word was already in use. People understood what it meant. And even at that time, when the King James translators translated it as baptize rather than immerse, that's what people were doing. For the most part, they were immersing. That was the most popular form. But that's what the literal translation would say, that they were immersed. So why do we have people that say, well, it's okay to sprinkle? Well, it's because there, many of them are like J. Vernon McGee, who said it just doesn't matter. The way that you do it doesn't matter. And most of them have changed the meaning of it, what it represents. So they aren't trying to picture what Romans 6 shows that baptism pictures. So whether, then, whether for convenience or for a change of meaning, it's wrong not to do what the, bapt, uh, what the Bible requires. So what does the scriptural mode require? Well, we have to get the right picture. And it pictures the burial and resurrection of Christ. Now, that seems to me to be a very serious representation. Baptism pictures the gospel. Isn't this what Paul said the gospel is? That Christ was buried, or that he died, that he was buried, and that he arose from the grave? And in our text, 
Romans 6, 4, it says, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I don't think that you can be much clearer than that. It's baptism into death. And then it says, like as Christ was raised up from the dead. Now, similarly, in Colossians 2.12, it says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So if baptism pictures a burial, how can you do that by sprinkling? How can you do that by pouring? I mean, we don't bury dead bodies by putting a little bit of dirt on them. Uh, you, you go to the cemetery, you don't see arms and legs that are sticking up out of the ground. And that's why when I baptize someone, I try to get the entire body underneath the water, try to get them all the way down. Now, I remember a baptism several years ago. I was baptizing a big, big lady, and uh, I was wondering, how am I going to get her back up once I get her down? And uh, after... Uh, the, the real problem when I started to baptize her, though, was not getting her up. The problem was getting her down because she kept floating up. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have to sit on her to get her all the way under the water. But uh, I, I didn't have to do that. I mean, I pushed and I pushed and I half drowned her maybe, but I finally, I finally got the whole body under the water because that's what we got to symbolize. Uh, Jesus, when he went into the tomb, he was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, just like... Uh, Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man was in the heart of the earth. And so he was completely entombed there. And baptism shows that. It shows the entombment of Christ. Well, people that sprinkle aren't dumb. I mean, it's not that they don't know these kinds of things that I'm telling you. So they know that they can't picture uh, a burial by sprinkling water on someone. So what they do is they just change the symbolism. They change it into something else. And so this is why they go to Romans chapter 6 and they make it a mystical baptism, a spirit baptism, rather than a baptism in water. But these are two things that the, the Word of God requires, that baptism requires a scriptural subject and a scriptural mode. Now, thirdly, baptism requires scriptural authority. Now, if people don't err on the... A mode of baptism, most often this is where the mistake is made. They are on the authority. So who is it that has the authority to baptize? Well, God's not given everybody the authority to baptize. If we're to have a scriptural baptism, it must be received at the hand of the proper authority. So let's take a look at that. What is the chain of proper authority that we see in Scripture? How did it come to us? Well, first, baptism is by the Trinitarian formula. And when I say Trinitarian, I mean that it's under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now in Matthew 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So the first authority is God. Remember when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and arguing with them, and he asked them, From whence was John's baptism? Is it from heaven or is it of men? And the obvious answer to the question is that John's baptism came from heaven. Of course it was from heaven. Baptism wasn't the invention of men. 
So it comes directly from the authority of God. He's the originator. God said do it, and that's the reason that we do it. Well, then God authorized the first baptizer. And who was that first baptizer? That was John the Baptist. Not John the Methodist and John the Presbyterian, not John the Catholic, John the Baptist. And he got his authority directly from God. Well, it's obvious to us that God doesn't baptize. And so what he did was to give the authority to his authorized representative. And he appointed the administrator. And the administrator of baptism was important enough that Jesus walked 60 miles to be baptized by that proper administrator. Now, the issue of authority was also very important to the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 19... He asked some disciples that came from Ephesus. He said, did you receive the Holy Ghost when you believed? And they said, no. And he said, unto then what were you baptized? Well, they knew it, and Paul knew it, that the authority for their baptism had to be right. And so they said, well, we were baptized by John. Paul knew there was something wrong. They didn't get their baptism directly from John, because if they had, then they would have received Christian baptism and John was teaching that the Messiah had come. He's the one that introduced Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So that administrator is very important. But John the Baptist is dead. And when Paul asked the question, John the Baptist was already dead. So who has the authority now? Well, this is where we go next, and that is God authorized the church to baptize. Now, let me show you how that we mechanically receive the authority. First, Jesus and all the apostles were baptized by John. Now, in the book of Acts, we have the case where the apostles had to choose a new apostle to replace Judas that had betrayed Jesus. Judas had killed himself. He hung himself. And so they were choosing a new apostle, and they set out the criteria for who could uh, be chosen as an apostle. And in Acts 1, verse 21, Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, there is a verse that tells us that Jesus and all of the apostles had John's baptism. And then in John 4, we learn that Jesus at some point had given those apostles the authority to baptize. John 4 says, Then therefore, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. Now what did Jesus do with those men? These disciples of his, the apostles, what did he do with them? He made those men his first church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it says, And God hath set some in the church first apostles. So that tells us that the apostles were in the church. They had the authority to baptize. So how did that authority get to us? Well, it comes through the succession of churches since the time of Christ. That's what the Great Commission does. It gives the authority to preach the word of God, and it gives the authority to baptize. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Uh, Jesus gave the commission, and at the end of that 20th verse, he said, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, you might want to make some kind of notation in your Bible there if you want to try to remember this for later, 
that here we know that the commission had to be given to those who are the successors of the apostles, given to the church, because the apostles could not have reached the entire world by themselves. They couldn't do it when they were alive, and they couldn't do it in the time since. They're not alive now. So how did, how did, how's the world to receive the gospel? And they're not going to be here when Jesus comes back at the end of the age. So it must be that the commission then was given to the church, to the church, not specifically to those apostles alone. Now, they were the church at that time, but to survive the commission, to have the commission alive today, to have a church today, and to have baptism today, to have the gospel today, then it must be a perpetual thing. Now, that's what we learn from Matthew 16, 18, where there it says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The church is always going to be here. It will always have this commission. And so it is the church itself that has that authority to baptize. So baptism is perpetual. The gospel is perpetual. The church is perpetual. Now, there's something very important about that that we do need to understand that a church that has the authority that comes out of the New Testament must be a church that is of like faith and order to that church that was in the New Testament. So it has to be one just like the one that Jesus started. Well, the Roman Catholic Church can't be that church. It started 350 years too late to be the church of Jesus Christ. Protestant churches are over 1,500 years too late to be true churches of Christ. And what they've done anyway is to switch the, the symbolism and the mode of baptism. So why would they have the authority to baptize? And why would we respect their authority? Now, that's one of the areas where we as Baptists, and I'm talking about old-time Baptists because the newer folks uh, that have come up, they, they don't pay too much attention to this. But as old, Bapt, uh, old Baptists, we, we come in conflict with other people that we don't take baptisms from non-Baptist churches. And the reason that we don't is because we do not respect their authority. Now, I remember several years ago, there was a lady that attended here, and she wanted to become a member of the church. And she'd been baptized in one of the denominational churches, and it was not a church of like faith and order to Berean. Uh, but she was a saved lady. I mean, I have no doubt that she was saved. Um, and she came, and she liked the church. She attended often. She was here every Sunday. She said that she agreed with the teachings of the church and that she wanted to become a member. And so we went into my office, and we sat down, and I began to talk to her, and so I just asked her about her baptism. Well, she had one of those emotional baptisms. That is, she was baptized in a creek or a river or somewhere, uh, not normally like uh, most people are in the church, but she had an emotional baptism. And, and she kept telling me how meaningful that that baptism was to her. But the problem was that she wasn't baptized with someone who had the authority to baptize. They didn't agree with New Testament teaching. They didn't agree with our church. And so we would never have let someone from that group come here and stand in this pulpit and preach because they didn't preach the truth. And so why would, we, why would we respect their authority to baptize? Well, we wouldn't. She might as well have been baptized by the manager of the Safeway store for all we care because she didn't have the proper authority. She was just attached to the baptism that she had. Now, false churches cannot baptize. Now, I do know that there are some true believers that are in false churches. I believe that they're saved, but their baptism is not valid. And so I told her that. I said, your baptism is not valid. But she just couldn't do it. 
She had that emotional attachment to that unscriptural baptism. And because of that, she would not be baptized properly. So she let her personal feelings overrule what the Word of God says. Now, the problem with that is that individuals do not determine whether baptism is right. Your emotional attachment to your baptism does not make it right. It's the Word of God that determines the validity of a baptism. And the church is given as the pillar and the ground of the truth, and we uphold the truth of the Word of God. So if we take wrong baptisms, if we say, well, we'll take your baptism no matter what your church believes, then we're saying that doctrine doesn't matter. You believe what you like, you do what you like, and that's okay with us. But we can't do that. We have to go by the Word of God. And if we don't, we don't have a scriptural church. Now, baptism is a church ordinance, and that's why we're discussing it under the doctrine of the church. Our statement of faith, based on Scripture, says, we believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer under the authority of a New Testament Baptist church into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That is our history. We are called Anabaptists in the past. That means rebaptizers, And that's because we only took into membership those who had been baptized with real authority. All others had to receive correct baptism. Now, finally this evening, the fourth qualification for a scriptural baptism is that baptism requires a scriptural design. Well, that means that baptism has to be done for the right reason. I've already touched on that some, but let's listen to the fourth clause of the statement of faith. To show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life. So what is the design of baptism? Well, I can tell you what it's not. Baptism is not designed to save. Baptism is not for the purpose of regenerating people. The new birth does not take place in baptism. Now, there are a few scriptures in the New Testament that people will take and twist and pervert and use them against the overwhelming evidence that we have in scripture uh, about the design of baptism, but there's one place that we can go where the question is asked in just a point-blank fashion, what must I do to be saved? And that question was asked and answered in Acts chapter 16, verses 29 to 31, and this is the story of the Philippian jailer. Now, in that story, Paul and Silas had been put into the jail at Philippi, and there was a great earthquake, and the earthquake uh, shook the jail, and Paul's and Silas's uh, bonds fell off of them, their chains fell off of them, the, the whole prison house actually had, had, uh, had been shaken and, and all the prisoners could have gone free, but they didn't leave the prison house. But the jailer didn't know that and so he was afraid and, and in verse 29 of Acts 16, then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. There's no baptism in that verse. A moment ago, we read about Cornelius. He received the Holy Spirit before he was baptized. Nobody calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was anointed with oil, he told the woman that anointed her, him, Thy faith has saved thee. 
In John 3.16 and in John 3.36, many other scriptures that talk about believing and faith and eternal life, there is no baptism mentioned. To the thief on the cross, in those dying moments in which he trusted Christ, there was no opportunity for baptism, and yet Jesus said to him, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So he needed faith only to be justified with God. Now secondly, baptism is designed to be a good work. Now what does the Bible say about keeping laws and commandments and doing good works for salvation? Well, let's read just a few scriptures. Uh, starting at Romans chapter 4, Paul says there, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Galatians 2.16, Paul says there, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now that verse, Paul just wraps it up every conceivable angle. That works have nothing to do with saving us. And then in Titus 3.5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, I remember years ago that uh, my father asked a Campbellite preacher this question. He said, is baptism a good work? Now, Campbellites are Church of Christ people, and they believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. So this man knew that he was in a dilemma with this question. My dad says, is baptism a good work? Well, he, know, he knew that the Bible says that we're not saved by good works. He knows the Bible says that. So if he said that baptism is not a good work, then he has a problem also. If it's not a good work, then is it a bad work? Well, if it's a bad work, then how does it save you? So either way that he went, he was on the horns of a dilemma. Good works don't save, and certainly bad works don't save. And baptism is a good work. Thirdly, baptism is not a sacrament. It's not designed to be a sacrament. Baptism is not a way to obtain grace. That would confuse grace and works. Baptism is a good work. It's a command that we obey. It's something that we actually perform. Baptism is not something that God does to us. It's not something that happens to us on the inside. Baptism is an outward work that we perform. And again, we can't be saved by any rituals or any work that we do. That's not how we obtain salvation. Paul said in Galatians 3, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of, of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He said we are children of God by faith. Now you may remember we looked at that scripture in studying the book of Galatians. And this scripture means that we put on Christ in baptism just like a soldier puts on a uniform. And that uniform doesn't make him a soldier. It identifies the man as a soldier. And that's what baptism is. It identifies us. When we put on Christ in baptism, it identifies us as a believer in him. And that's why we call it our public 
confession of Christ. That's the public declaration. That's what baptism is designed for. Now, we show in it that we believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. We show in it that we've been saved from our old life, and now we're new creatures in Christ and rise to walk in that new life. Well, one final point for the design. Baptism is designed as the doorway into the church. No one can become a member of the Lord's church without baptism. In Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That means they were added to the church when they were baptized. Now, do you see how important that baptism is? You can't make a true New Testament church without baptism. If you destroy baptism, you destroy the church. And that's why we insist on proper baptism. And so we guard the ordinance. We guard it so that we take a a scriptural subject, we do it by the scriptural mode, we do it under scriptural authority, and we do it with scriptural design. Why do we do all of that? Because the Lord's church is at stake. Now, what Christ has done, he's preserved his church down through the centuries, all the time since he was here, that has been, there has been a true church, and true churches have always kept the ordinances. They did them right. And this is why baptism is so important to us as Baptists. Now, we are historical Baptists, so we don't believe that baptism saves us, but we do believe that it ensures that we keep a New Testament church. So it's very important for us. We need baptism But it has to be right. It has to meet all of these qualifications that we find in Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we enjoy taking the time to look into subjects like this and just going step by step to see what the word of God has to say. And this is what we need to do. We need to be good students of your word. We need to understand what we believe and why we believe it. What does the Bible have to say about it? because there's nothing that we do here that we want to be without scriptural authority. So, Lord, we thank you for the time we've had to study your word tonight, and I pray that everyone here has accepted the word and has a right kind of a baptism and one that is accepted by you, because that is what is most important of all. So thank you, Lord, for the time we spent here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.